Hello, I'm Dennis Hall, a Charter Financial Planner, the founder of Yellowtail Financial Planning, and I've been talking to people about money for almost 40 years. And I'm Sarah Steele. I work with Dennis, but I'm not a financial planner. I'm here to ask questions relevant to you, our listeners, and to keep things on the right side of technical. Basically, does it pass the Sarah test? Welcome to this episode of The Century Plan, and today we're going to be talking about longevity, or more accurately, life expectancy, and why it's important to understand current trends and the substantial effect it has on our financial planning. So, Dennis, why are we talking about longevity today? Sarah, I mean, this is anecdotal rather than academic, but a high proportion of people, certainly those people that I talk to, underestimate their life expectancy. They tend to anchor their age of dying to their parents' and grandparents' generation. And so I've spent the weekend unearthing facts and figures. And in turn, what I've discovered is both fascinating and frightening. (laughs) Okay, so what do you mean by that? Well, the rate of change in demographics and socioeconomics unearths some interesting data. But there is a realisation that I've come to that governments and even the current generation are are unprepared for what this means. Uh, And it's not just in this country, by the way. This is a global problem. Right. Now, I've spent several hours, as I said, poring over the data and charts, mainly from a, a recent study published in The Lancet. And if we don't take seriously this problem, this problem of an aging population, then I think we're all going to be in trouble. And, I mean, by the looks of it, successive governments just keep kicking the can down the road. This is a very difficult problem. So if governments don't adequately deal with this, then the responsibility for our own financial welfare lands firmly on our shoulders. Okay, I do feel a bit worried now. Um, Can you give me some facts? I can bore you with facts, Sarah. (laughs) And I'm going to go back to 1881. And I'm going to take a look at what was happening then. And then we won't stay in 1881. We'll come back up to date again. But I want to give us some context. Mm -hmm. So in 1881, three quarters of people over 65 were still in the workforce. That's 15 out of every 20 people of whom we might term old age pensioners were still working. And they had a life expectancy of just 11 years to age 76. Now, by 1931, some 50 years later, the country had witnessed real wage growth and the introduction of the first state pension in 1909. So that meant people were able to leave the workforce, or more people were able to leave the workforce, by age 65. So, in fact, only about 48% of them were still working, approximately 10 out of every 20, instead of the 15 out of every 20 50 years earlier. But after World War II, things really began to change rapidly. The economic changes we saw as a country, the rapid growth in wages and prosperity, meant that only 1 in 20 people at age 65 were continuing to work. That's a big difference. It is. And and for a long time, this has been the expectation and the aspiration that we would stop work at age 65. But it started to reverse. There is a growth in employment for people over 65, certainly in the UK, Germany, France and the US. In some places this has risen to as high as 30%, 
or six in every 20 people over the age of 65, versus one in 20 that we saw shortly after World War II. And if we want to see just how high it can go, we only have to look at Japan. It's a country with one of the highest levels of life expectancy and one of the highest old age dependency ratios globally. And in parts of Japan, up to 75% of people over 65 are still working, albeit part-time. Can I butt in? Yeah. You used a the phrase there, old age dependency ratios. What's that? I'm glad you asked. Look, the old age dependency ratio is simply the proportion of people aged 65 older compared to the number of people of working age. I see. So I'm going to take you back 100 years to demonstrate what I mean by this and, and what the change has been. Back in 1922, the OADR, old age dependency ratio, was 10% meaning that for every person over the age of 65, there are approximately nine people of working age. Fast forward to today, and the OADR is closer to 30%, meaning there are approximately three people of working age for every person over the age of 65. And that trend line is flattening. Eventually, we're going to reach a point where there are more people over retirement age than there are in working age, and literally, just prior to coming into the studio, Sarah, mm. I was reading something in the, in the internet about France. They've got the problem as well. Mm. And they're talking about that by about 2070 that they can forecast they will have more people at retirement age than working. And it's a massive problem. Mm, my goodness, it does sound like it. Um, I mean, I think I can slightly guess, but what does that mean for us now? Well... You can guess. It's not good news. This is going to have implications for everything that is state-funded. We're talking about pensions here, like the old age pension, public sector pensions, and that's NHS, police, armed forces, local authorities, but also our public services. Is there any wonder that the younger people today don't actually believe there'll be a state pension for them when they get older? But if they're paying in today, surely the money will be there when they reach pension age? Well, you might think so. But these pensions, these state pensions, are unfunded. They are paid for out of tax and national insurance receipts today. They're not saved up and they're not put in a big pot. There's no big pension fund for the government to draw on. Okay. So with fewer people working and an ageing population and growing, we've created a time bomb. But you've been talking here about the proportion of people over age 65 compared to the number of people of working age. That's not life expectancy, is it? No, no, you're right. In fact, there are two connected problems running alongside each other. One, the OADR that we've been talking about, and the other, the general increase to the length of life. So, yeah, let's turn our attention to life expectancy. Okay. And again, I need to go back a bit to show you what's been happening. Let's go back 100 years again. If you, had, if you were born 100 years ago, you had a life expectancy of approximately 67 years if you were a man and 74 years if you were a woman. So things got worse. What do you mean? Well, didn't you say earlier when we were talking about old age dependency ratio that three quarters of people at age 65 were still working and they had a life expectancy of 11 years? Um, that takes them to age 76, higher than either 67 or 74, which you've just mentioned. You're right, and I did say that. 
So life expectancy is the average age of death for people born in that year. So back in 1881, which is when I was talking about, if you'd managed to stay alive to age 65, you were doing well, incredibly well. And you were likely, therefore, to live longer than average. The fact is, the longer we live, the longer we're likely to live, mm. which sounds counterintuitive, but the statistics bear this out. Oh, I see. So if you reach 65 today, there's a very good chance you reach 85. And if you reach 85, there's a very good chance you reach 92. Okay then, back to life expectancy. So life expectancy is in the main improving worldwide, apart from a couple of countries, mainly in Africa, that are ravaged by civil war. The top two countries for life expectancy are Japan and Singapore. And after that, Europe dominates. Interestingly, the US doesn't feature in the top 20 countries due to the disparity of wealth in that country. Mm. Globally, women outlive men by approximately six years, but that gap is closing. And I've alluded to it with my comment about the US, but money is a key driver to an increased lifespan. About 25% of, of life expectancy is genetics. The rest is down to lifestyle choices. Exercise is vital. Aha, uh -huh. so is that why you're constantly doing this mad running? Well, that and a few things, Sarah. I'm of that age where my body begins to groan a bit. And I, you know, I have this intention of living to age 100. So exercise is vital. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I try and run as much as I can. Um, and I'm having to think more about the other things that I have to do, yeah. such as having a normal weight. So, you know, I jump onto the scales every so often. I don't always like what I see. <laughs> um, eating a good diet that's high in fibre is important, one that's low in sugar and red meats. It does mean I have to make some lifestyle changes. I'm not happy with that. But if I'm going to live to 100, and I am, this is what I've got to you do. heard it here. So, but there are other things too, like meeting people, having fun, playing games, getting enough sleep. These are all the things that money can help with. And there are actually things that I think people are beginning to be aware of. Yes. Um, there, are, you know, there are things that are happening in communities that people can get involved in. And we saw during the various lockdowns how mental health problems occurred when people were isolated from each other. So it's incredibly important that we look and do things um, uh, with other people. Yeah. And again, it, you know, it just comes down to it, money is an enabler. Okay, so, so far you've been talking about trends, statistics and demographics, and I'm interested that you've now introduced money into the mix. Can we spend a bit of time talking about that? We can. Everything's been leading up to talk about money. This is the century plan after all. So increases in life expectancy have been a game changer with regards to money. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that society and we have largely been caught napping. The original state pension, 1909, remember, was designed to support those lucky few that achieved age 65. And back then, retirement age for women was 60. And these people had a relatively low life expectancy of just a few years. And if you remember, for every old age pensioner, there were approximately nine people working. Yes. Today, fewer than three people are working, and they're supporting pensioners with nigh on 20 years of life expectancy. So the state pension is broken. That certainly sounds it. And the problem's mirrored in the private sector too. 
Final salary pensions are a distant memory for many of us, and the amount that is contributed into personal pensions and other savings is inadequate to maintain a standard of living in retirement that our parents and maybe our grandparents have enjoyed. Oh goodness, so what does that mean for our savings and investments? Well, simply put, we need to be saving more. We need to be saving for longer, and we need to be taking more investment risk than most people currently do. Now, I'm going to be digging deeper into this in later episodes, but consider this. Almost 40 years ago, when I started in financial services, the average contribution into a final salary scheme on behalf of a member was around 13% of salary. And that meant that after 40 years of service, that member would retire and expect to retire on about 50% of their final salary, with some indexing and a widow's pension. And they had a life expectancy to around age 74. A little more for women, a little less for men. Today, that same pension pot needs to last around 10 years more, and it's become unaffordable for those final salary schemes and the sponsoring employers. Yet contribution rates generally made by people haven't really gone up. So how is that additional 10 years or so of uh, retirement getting funded? Something has got to give. Look, if you're in a basic auto-enrolment pension scheme with your employer today, the minimum default funding rate is 8%. It's even less than the 13% we had before. So I think people currently are just walking into a retirement disaster. In fact, if you're not contributing closer to 20% of your income over your working life, or if you're shying away from investing in the stock market over the long term, if you're burying your head in the sand hoping the government are going to bail you out, then you're not going to be able to retire and enjoy the retirements that the boomer generation has enjoyed. Dennis, this all sounds very ominous. Um, Is there something you can say to give me hope? There is. I mean, I think there is. I'm working with people all the time where we are confronting these challenges head on. Making plans and doing more of the right things rather than more of the wrong things. That will help. The individual has got to successfully navigate these issues. The state isn't going to do it for you. And this is what the Century Plan is trying to do as we progress these episodes. Okay, great. So what we'll be looking at in the next episode? I've alluded to it already. The next episode, we're going to be looking at risk, and not just investment risk, but all the types of risk that face anyone as they as they navigate life. Um, yeah, risk. It's a fascinating subject. Okay, great. I'm looking forward to finding out more. Uh, Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and we look forward to joining you next time on the Century Plan podcast.